welcome to Foolproof Theology. My name is Chase Davis. Uh, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to be with here, be with you here as we uh, talk about theology in a really deep manner. Um, and today, I'm really excited about our guest that we're going to have on the show, Dr. John Frame. Dr. Frame is the Professor Emeritus of Systematic Theology and Philosophy at Reformed Theological Seminary, Orlando. He's an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church in America. He's deeply committed to the work of ministry and training pastors, really a prolific writer, uh, writing on topics related to theology, apologetics, worldview. And uh, his Theology of Lordship series, for me personally, uh, was so formational and and helpful, particularly as I was going through seminary. Uh, Dr. Frame is also a talented pianist and organist. I've never had the privilege of listening to that, but I know several friends have, and he and his wife, Mary, have several children. They live in the Orlando area. Dr. Frame, thanks so much for being on the show today. Great to be with you, Chase. Um, you know, I, for, for people that go to my church, they may not know this, uh, but your theology in particular, the theological method of triperspectivalism has been so deeply uh, impactful for so many. And that's part of the reason I'm so thankful to have you on the show. You know, it's hard with a topic like triperspectivalism because it's kind of a, a, a word that most people find a little complicated and cumbersome. And then not only that, but the uh, perspectives themselves, the existential, the normative, and the situational. When you try to describe that to lay people in a church, it can be a little challenging. Have you had that experience before? Oh, yes. Of course, I've uh, done most of my writing and teaching with uh, professional scholars, stu students who are preparing for ministry and so on. So I can use a little bit of uh, technical language with them. But uh, uh, for a broader audience, uh, when you hear the word triperspectival, just, just think of a kind of theology where there are a lot of threes around. There are three aspects of this and three parts of that and three phases of this. And uh, and it all kind of boils down to the uh, uh, our belief in the Trinity, that God is one God, but uh, he has three persons, Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then everything else gets uh, built up from there. That's great. And that's part of the reason I was uh, I was excited to to work on on this theological method um, and write my book on triperspectivalism, Trinitarian formation, and so uh, deeply appreciative of your work. One of the ways I kind of like to start off talking uh, with people is particularly with their academic pedigree. Now, with you, it's been quite some time since uh, you were at Yale, uh, going after a degree there, and and I. I, I remember us talking about this, uh, kind of conversing back and forth over email and talking about kind of the academic world and the church. And one of the things you've you've uh, challenged me on in, in a helpful way is this concept of the academic captivity of the church. And so I wanted to start off there with you, if that's all right. When you talk about the academic captivity of the church, what is it you're talking about? Well, it's a kind of neat title because Luther wrote a book called The Babylonian Captivity of the Church, and uh, he was referring to Roman Catholicism, and uh, uh, so I thought I'd come up with a parallel to uh, meet, uh, talk about my own uh, issues. And uh, so uh, academic captivity uh, simply means that the church has, uh, has given over its uh, a lot of its authority uh, to 
the academic world to the universities and the colleges and the institutes and so on and so forth. About the medieval period, the uh, universities began to spring up over Europe and uh, in the British Isles, and uh, uh, the church was active in this, and a lot of them uh, were uh, used to <clears throat> teach people who were preparing for ministry or preparing to be teachers in the church. And uh, on the whole, you can see why they regarded this as a, a good thing, but there, I see two problems with it. One is that uh, uh, the Bible doesn't put a lot of emphasis on academic training for people who are seeking the ministry. Uh, in the Bible, uh, uh, the disciples were the people who had been with Jesus. And uh, there was, of course, the Apostle Paul, who had a, a lot of what we would consider today to be academic training. He, he had formal rabbinical instruction as a Jew, and uh, he, he had a masterful understanding of the Old Testament, the New Testament, and uh, he went through some very complicated uh, arguments and, and conceptual distinctions, and uh, we still are trying to understand him today. So he is a bona fide intellectual, but uh, those were kind of rare in the early church, and they weren't, uh, you know, they didn't feel that you had to have that kind of expertise. If you're going to be a, a minister, you need to know the gospel. You need to uh, uh, know the basic truth about Christ and who God is and so on. But that could be learned uh, in a kind of academy through the catechism process and uh, uh, various things. And uh, uh, so the, the original uh, teaching of the church for the first few centuries, sorry about that phone, uh, right. is uh, largely non-academic. And uh, that, that's the first problem. I think, I think when uh, people today, there are a lot of denominations that require their uh, candidates for ministry to spend several years in seminary. And I think that's wrong. I think they ought to test the knowledge of these people, but it shouldn't make much difference whether they come to, from seminary or from a university or or uh, online or how, however they gain their knowledge. Uh, uh, they uh, And, and the, the training for, for the ministry ought to be much more practical. I think what uh, happens in seminaries is that uh, about 90% of the training is academic and about 10% the, the field experience requirement uh, ten percent is uh, practical. Uh, I'd like to see it turned upside down and have the the training be a kind of uh, uh, accreditation uh, system, or, or I mean, uh, apprenticeship system, uh, with supplemented by academic editions uh, online and so on. So that's the first thing. I, I think that uh, the churches. Uh, commitment to the academic world has kind of distorted their idea of how people should be trained for the ministry. The, the other thing is that in the last 300 years or so, uh, the academic world has been the chief source of false teaching hmm. in the church, uh, including most of the heresies that have come over, the teaching of, of higher biblical criticism, for example, that the uh, Bible uh, is uh, in error at many places, just like any human book would be. And uh, a lot of uh, 
ideas that uh, I just think are, are unbiblical have come in through the academic world, and we really need to recognize that there is a kind of antithesis between the church and the academy. And uh, because the church has been so committed to the academic world for the training of its pastors, it, it hasn't been as sensitive as it ought to be to the dangers uh, of what is coming into the church through the academy. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's something that I've experienced when we started, uh, when I started in the ministry, I actually hadn't been to seminary. Um, and then not only that, but I was planting a church. So there were all sorts of vulnerabilities to that endeavor. Uh, and so I was thankful for my uh, participation in seminary, and I'm still interested in that. But I did find it very uh, light on the uh, apprenticeship side. Uh, I would find myself in ministry often going, there's no training for how to, whether it's uh, counsel someone practically, uh, biblically, lead an organization, uh, craft a, and manage a church budget, uh, lead, a, lead an elder team or a boardroom, um, raise up deacons and that kind of thing. And I was really missing out on a lot of that stuff that, that we were having to really innovate, uh, hopefully not too innovative and breaking with tradition or anything, but having to innovate on the fly as we uh, as we were planting. Training in evangelism is especially weak in a lot of churches now. For sure, for sure. What is uh, what is something that the church can do to to kind of get out of this kind of captivity to the academic world? What's what's something that uh, it, would it be training in evangelism, like you just mentioned, or what's something that that churches could do? Yes, well, you, you can't just pile on things, you know, but uh, I, I think the church ought to uh, rethink its whole approach to uh, preparing people for uh, ministry, and I think they, they they will need to, I mean, they've published these guidelines, you know, that you have to go to seminary for at least two years and get this kind of degree, and it has to be approved by some committee and so on and so forth. I'd like to see the churches really think through that and, and recognize that the important thing is the, the qualifications of the candidate and, and not the method that he's used for getting it. So he, uh, he ought to be tested in his theology, of course, but also uh, uh, in, uh, he ought to get recommendations as somebody who, is, who knows a lot about uh, church government, evangelism, and counseling and uh, uh, all the different things that uh, we need to have in ministers today. That's great. Uh, one of the things I've wondered is I've, I want to go get a PhD. I'm in the process of exploring that. And, and you and I have talked about that over email. Um, what would be a, a redemptive aspect of Christians participating in the academic world? What would be something that, that if, if somebody's hearing this and going, well, I guess the academy is, is uh, worthless or or uh, almost engaging in kind of the, the opposite era of going, uh, we shouldn't even try to do academic things. What would be something that, that could be redemptive in the academy? Yeah, I, I'm not so much against academic theology as such as I am against the, the way it interfaces with the church and the, the ministry of the church. But if people want to want to study God and there's a way to do it in in an academic uh, setting, that's perfectly okay. I mean, you, it's okay to study anything. It's okay to study economics or sociology or science or anything. Uh, so uh, if 
if universities want to have theology departments and people can just go there and study, that that could be good. And uh, of course, then we'd have to make the decision as to who's teaching the right stuff and uh, uh, who's orthodox and who's not and uh, what kind of uh, denominational viewpoint they're going to get and so on and so forth. You need to uh, work all that out, but you, you need to do that, of course, today with the seminary system as well. But uh, yeah, you, I think there, there are lots of opportunities to, uh, and, and of course, you know, perhaps you want to study God not so that you can go into the ministry. I mean, there are lots of reasons for studying God and studying the Bible and studying Jesus Christ for people who don't intend to be pastors and elders and uh, youth leaders and so on. So, uh, and in that, uh, you know, you go to, to university to learn. Now, one of the things you may want to do there and uh, that you really need to do if you're a believer, one of the things that you uh, really need to do is to witness while you're there. And, to, uh, and if you get a PhD and you get on a university faculty, you need to use that influence that you have with your colleagues, uh, with the students who come, uh, in your papers, in your writings, in your books to uh, uh, present the uh, a Christian view of things. And that can be very helpful, and that can be a ministry too. It's not the same as a pastoral ministry in a church, but uh, that can be a very helpful thing. So you can, uh, of course, today with cancel culture, you might be fired the second day you're on the job, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, that's not true everywhere. Uh, you, you, you'll find some places where they'll be open to you. When I was uh, going to secular universities many years ago, I had lots of you know, just gentle uh, collegial discussions with people on all sorts of important matters. And uh, uh, they didn't write me off uh, there. They, they wanted to show their openness. This was part of their creed. They wanted to be open-minded and liberal and all of that. So uh, we had a great time. Now, that, that has completely passed by the boards today with cancel culture. But who knows, it may come back again, you know, maybe, maybe one of you who uh, God has blessed with a lot of money, maybe you could start a university <laughs> intended to be uh, open for discussion and where all points of view are represented and they'll try to, uh, uh, it'll make it an exciting kind of Athenian place to study and to, to live and that could be a very uh, valuable thing. Yeah, that's a great observation. Uh, one of the things that I've been reflecting on is how the way the church goes often shapes the culture. And because of kind of this concept of the academic captivity of the church, there's a lot of credentialism. There's a lot mm. of kind of believing that we, if you have a PhD after your name or something like that, that somehow that means you're more trustworthy. And so the credentialism has been uh, kind of in crisis over this last, uh, you know, two years as yeah. uh, the experts yeah. show that they either they don't know what's going on and that's fine uh we should trust god ultimately uh but even they don't agree amongst themselves and so that i think that, that the academic captivity of the church shaped kind of that uh that problem in society is that something you would you would pick up on too yeah i i think that's that's true i think the uh uh 
we, we are living in a very strange time today so far as uh, uh, the gaining of knowledge is concerned. And uh, there, there's just very little real discussion and debate and give and take and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, when one person finds somebody else that uh, he disagrees with, he tends to write them off rather than getting together and uh, trying to understand where they're coming from. And that, that I think, is a very bad uh, development for society. I agree. Um, you know, I typically what I do is I, I like to drill down on one topic or two topics related to kind of someone's kind of academic or writing or ministry but because of the breadth of of your uh, your writing uh, especially over over the last decade as as uh, kind of more publications come out i thought it might be helpful if i just kind of was a little self-indulgent and inquired about two topics that that are really uh that i've been chewing on intellectually that that uh to use your phrase i haven't found cognitive rest on right i haven't really resolved, uh, but I've been exploring. And so the two topics I've been mulling over are Thomism and antinomianism. And so I wanted to take those in stride. First, Thomism, you know, it's interesting. Uh, one of our first emails back and forth, uh, I was inquiring and uh, just, you know, asking what it was like being retired. And and you mentioned this phrase, militant Thomists. And uh, and I, I got a good chuckle out of that. I also was perplexed by it because I wasn't aware at the time. I think this was in 2017, 2018. Um, I wasn't aware of, of militant Thomism. I don't know what that means. <laughs> and so, uh, so I had to ask a professor, like, Dr. Frame said this. What do you think he's talking about? And so we talked about Thomism and that kind of thing. Um, I guess it might be helpful before we even get into that, though, is what is Thomism? <laughs> well, for the benefit of your listeners, I, I'm sure you know this, but uh, Thomism is uh, a reference to the views of uh, Thomas Aquinas, who was one of the major uh, uh, medieval theologians. He lived in the 13th century. He only lived to be 49, but uh, he was an incredible uh, uh, producer of uh, very tightly reasoned theological books and uh, uh and, and he was a very godly man. He was a member of the Dominican order, and uh, uh, he uh, did a lot of things. And I, 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 today people picture me as an anti-Thomist, as, as an opponent of him, but uh, I have to start off by saying that I'm a great admirer of his. I, I think that he did a lot of good things, and they're probably 80% to 90% of what he wrote I would agree with, uh, uh, wholeheartedly. But uh, I, I think what happened was that, uh, and Thomas was not the only one, there were a lot of people in the medieval period who were, who were kind of uh, taken up by the challenge of Greek philosophy. They were, they were interested in uh, uh, working through Plato and Aristotle and, uh, and uh, uh, Plotinus and the various uh, thinkers of the Greek tradition because they wanted to defend the Christian faith in the most uh, cogent way that they possibly could. And the, uh, uh, the, the most cogent thinkers philosophically uh, in the medieval period were considered to be the Greeks. And so they went back to the Greeks and probably most of the medieval uh, theologians picked up on Plato and did various variations on Plato, but uh, Aquinas is famous uh, for the fact that he picked up uh, uh, on Aristotle, who was uh, 
Plato's student and uh, a very uh, comprehensive, wide-ranging type of thinker. And uh, uh, so Thomas Aquinas is famous for uh, uh, using uh, Aristotle's proofs for the existence of God, and uh, uh, and and he quite uh, he, he tended to uh, equate uh, the God of Aristotle with the God of the Bible. Uh, now there are a lot of things in common between those two. Uh, both of them are eternal. Uh, uh, Aristotle's God was eternal. The biblical God is eternal. Uh, they. Uh, both Aristotle, Aristotle described his God as the first cause of everything, uh, and Thomas Aquinas described the Christian God that way. And that's not wrong. Uh, uh, the God of the Bible certainly is the first cause. The, if you go back and find the cause of this and the cause of that and the cause of that, uh, eventually you get to God. God is the cause of everything. There's one major difference and that is that uh, Aristotle did not believe in creation. Mm. Uh, Aristotle believed that uh, the world was eternal. And uh, how could he believe that the world was eternal if he believed that God was the first cause? Well, he, he believed that, uh, uh, you know, there are, uh, when, I, when I push one billiard ball into the hole, uh, there's a cause and there's an effect but those causes and effects are both in time. And so Aristotle thought that all causes and effects were in time, and there was no beginning of time. There was no cause of time itself. There was no cause of the world. Now, Thomas Aquinas uh, disagreed with him there. Uh, Thomas Aquinas said, look, the Bible teaches that God uh, created the world at the beginning of time. And so we just have to disagree with Aristotle at this point. Aquinas said uh, uh, he admitted that he really could not refute Aristotle uh, <laughs> intellectually. Uh, Aristotle had given various reasons for saying that time is eternal, and, and Aquinas said that he could not get uh, around those reasons, but because the Bible said something different, uh, Aquinas very commendably uh, said that we uh, need to follow the Bible. For Christians, we need to follow the Bible and, and not follow Aristotle at that point. Well, that's the, that's the way the, uh, the, the discussion went. Now, the Roman Catholic Church uh, looked at Aquinas uh, perhaps more favorably than the Protestants later did, although the Protestants were very strongly influenced by Aquinas too. But uh, the Roman Catholics uh, uh, said that Aquinas was the doctor of the church. He was the, the main teacher. And uh, any time a Roman Catholic wanted to develop a doctrinal idea, he would uh, very often go back to Aquinas and quote him before uh, going on with his own uh, uh, position. So that's the way it has it has been. Uh, Protestants, and I, I am a Protestant, I am a Presbyterian, uh, Protestants have tended to be more critical of Aquinas because we're more critical of Aristotle. Mm. And uh, But uh, some of the uh, Reformed uh, Presbyterian confessions and creeds are influenced by uh, Aquinas's thought. Well, now you get down into the present, and uh, uh, some of the 
Presbyterians, some of the Calvinists, uh, but very strong critics of Aquinas. Uh, Herman Duiveard, who was a disciple of Abraham Kuyper, and you may not know those names, but uh, uh, that's the way it's developed. Uh, uh, Duiveard was a very strong Calvinist, and he tried to make Calvinism into a philosophy, and I disagreed with him on a lot of things, but uh, <laughs> he wrote a four-volume set called uh, Reformation and Scholasticism. And Reformation was the teaching of Calvin, which Duiveard thought was the teaching of the Bible, and Scholasticism was the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, which begins with Thomas Aquinas and goes back to uh, Aristotle. And Duiveard was saw that these were, uh, well, in, in Duiveard's view, these two were sharply opposed to one another. And uh, if you if you adopt the one, you have to reject the other. So. Uh, in the 20th century, there, there has been a kind of battle uh, within Presbyterian circles uh, between the uh, Kuyperian, the, the Duiverdian Reformation view of things, and the Thomas Aquinas scholastic view of things. I was uh, taught by a famous uh, uh, Calvinistic philosopher named Cornelius Van Til, and Van Til was very much opposed to uh, Thomas Aquinas, and he, he took us through uh, Thomas Aquinas in great detail to try to show how uh, Aquinas' uh, uh, Aristotle's uh, denial of creation uh, affected Aquinas, even though Aquinas tried to uh, maintain the, the biblical view of creation. Well, uh, so we went, went through that, and I, I, I was not as opposed to Aquinas as uh, Van Til was, but uh, I basically came out with a kind of Van Tilian critique of Aquinas, and uh, I've written papers on that. And, uh, I, I studied Aquinas at Yale and various other places, and uh, I, I became pretty much a, a follower of Kuiper, the Dutch thinker, rather than the follower of Aquinas. Well, uh, that uh, approach was associated with Van Til. Van Til died in 1987, and after that time, uh, a number of uh, Calvinists or Reformed thinkers uh, became uh, more became very critical of Van Til and became more critical of Kuiper and more critical of Duiveard, and uh, they. Uh, adopted a more a position more like that of Thomas Aquinas. And so that's where we are now. Uh, in 2016, I think it was, there was a meeting at the uh, Evangelical Theological Society that hashed out some of these issues. And uh, there was one book that appeared about that time uh, by a, a man named Dolezal. He, uh, the book is called uh, All There Is in God. And basically what Dolezal says is that since the Reformed uh, confessions are influenced by Thomas Aquinas, therefore anybody who considers himself Reformed or Presbyterian uh, must follow Thomas Aquinas to the letter. Oh. And uh, that's there's a large group, I think it's, well, I could give you some names that are involved in this, but there's a fairly large group that... Uh, maintains that kind of view, uh, and uh, those are the Reformed Thomists. Uh, 
Uh, I am not a reformed Thomist. I'm still a, an unrepentant Vantillian. <laughs> and, uh, so there, there are some people who think that I'm not really reformed because I, I don't accept uh, uh, Dolezal. Well, you know, it's turnabout is fair play. I mean, when I was growing up, we, we said that uh, if you're a reformed and you're a Thomist, you can't be really reformed. You have sure. to be Vantillian and you have to be Kyperian. And uh, now they're turning the tables on us. And here I am at 82, seeing the whole thing turn upside down. And, uh, uh, and, and so I find myself kind of exiled from a lot of these <laughs> Mentions uh, being subjected to cancel culture of a sort, and uh, I don't really care. I mean, I'm 82, and I've I've published 20 books, and if anybody wants to know what I think, they can go and buy my books and find out. And I think the argument still holds up. And I don't like these controversies, and I'm not going to get involved in them. I I'm not going to play that game uh, where I write papers against them and they write papers against me and all that stuff. And so. Uh, here we go, and uh, uh, you know, you, you pay your money and take your choice, and I, I'm going to just keep going the way I am, and uh, until the Lord takes me, or unless the Lord shows me something that I have not seen in the Bible. But uh, I want to be shown from the Bible. I don't want people to say, "Well, you, you've got to believe this because the church fathers said it, or because." Thomas Aquinas says it, or because some Reformed divine says it, I, I, I don't really care that much about uh, about uh, that sort of thing anymore. That's great. Man, there's lots of good content in there that we could uh, we could talk about. That helps me a lot because I've been seeing, I follow a lot of those those thinkers who are, uh, I don't know if they would, are self-identified as Thomas, but they're definitely, uh, it gets into the, to the waters of the Trinity, Trinitarian thought, and and that's concerning to me, um, and so uh, so I'm, I'm a bit uh, weary of uh, of that kind of pursuit, um, but it seems to be attracting a lot of heat right now, and so that's very helpful for me as I think about your kind of your writing and ministry and thinking. We we've often had this problem in the church where uh, people who write on theological subjects. Uh, seem to be more governed by traditions. They're more governed by secondary confessions rather than the Bible itself. Uh, and I, I think that's a danger that uh, it would be good for us to avoid of, as much as possible. Mm, I agree. Um, Cornelius Van Til, he's kind of a legend. And and I have to admit, um, I, I'm not Presbyterian, at this time, uh, didn't grow up. I grew up Southern Baptist, um, and so there's this whole lineage and kind of influence, whether it's Schaefer, Van Til, or or all these thinkers that I, I was never exposed to growing up, um, just in kind of uh, more generic evangelicalism. Um, what was it like, though? Because I'm curious, and because I'd, I haven't had the the opportunity to go to a more reformed seminary or Presbyterian institution. What was it like learning from Cornelius Van Til? Well, he is a very famous person, at least in our uh, uh, narrow uh, evangelical circles in those days. Uh, he was kind of Mr. Calvinist, and uh, and uh, but but he had views that not all Calvinists agree with, and so it was a little bit of a partisan. Uh, uh, 
type of thing. But uh, he was about 65 years old when I studied with him. If he had uh, retired at 65, I might not have met, met him. But uh, <laughs> it's interesting how, how much your life can be changed by uh, uh, events in history. But uh, uh, he was teaching, and uh, uh, he had his kind of slogans. He had all his theology reduced to slogans and illustrations about ducks and puppies and, and things. And uh, he, he was from the Dutch. Uh, he was a, his family was, uh, they were Dutch farmers and uh, uh, salt-of-the-earth people. And uh, uh, Cornelius was the first one to to get into the real abstract uh, philosophical stuff. And uh, and uh, so I, I had majored in philosophy from where I came in college. And uh, so I was uh, just reveling in the opportunity of uh, going to class and getting into discussions with this man. And he, uh, every class hour was a discussion. He didn't lecture. Uh, I think earlier in his life he had, lectured, but he reduced those lectures to uh, books, which he called unpublished books, oxymoronic as that is. But uh, <laughs> anyway, there were these books and we were supposed to read them. And then we'd come to class and he'd ask questions of the students and the students would give their opinions. And there was a lot of back and forth, a lot of real neat uh, discussion going on. And uh, uh, it, a lot of us, you know, became... I mean, there were there were people like me who, who disagreed with him on specific points here and there, but uh, uh, you know, he represented a kind of movement, a kind of intellectual and theological and spiritual movement, and uh, he gained a lot of flat-out disciples uh, in the way that he taught, and uh, and we just grew up as uh, having the reputation of being Vantillians, and, uh, and some of the other Vantillians didn't like me because I wasn't Vantillian enough. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, so we, we went on and on, and now people are saying that I'm too Vantillian, and I don't care. I mean, <laughs> I am what I am. I, I, I like Vantill. I think I learned a huge amount from him, and I think uh, people in the church today, even though I know it's it's fashionable not to read things that were that are too old. Uh, anymore. I mean, we could go back and read Calvin, but and we can read the thing that came out last week, but we can't go back 20 years or 30 years. And I think we'd gain a lot if we were to read uh, some of the writers that uh, that were my teachers, like Van Til and John Murray and so on and so forth. I, I think they still have quite a lot to teach the church. I completely agree. And I've, I found uh, their writing so beneficial um, and it's crazy to think that your a lot of your writing uh, that I'm I've been reading was in the '80s before I was even born, um, and so uh, so it, you know I don't know I think the academy is at a point now where it's just like you know in the last ten to twenty years things just have progressed so quickly, and it's a real shame that thirty, forty, fifty years ago seems uh, those arguments are still very relevant. In fact, they're almost some of them when you read them they're almost prophetic in terms of what they see coming. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's a really good observation. Uh, kind of another topic I wanted to talk about that I've been wrestling with, I've been studying some of the Puritans and kind of the antinomian controversies. Um, 
antinomian wasn't a word it's not an easy word for for most lay people as well and so trying to describe the controversy as an antinomian controversy is automatically a little off-putting but I, I it was the first time i had thought to myself have i been an antinomian have i is this a perspective that i've had because once they described it uh, particularly in the writings of thomas hooker or some of these other guys that were fighting uh, kind of antinomian uh, controversies um you know it became really apparent like oh no what if what if that's me um but i thought i might come to you with that question not not that you know me necessarily to diagnose me but but more for me and my audience what when you think about antinomianism <clears throat> what does that mean well first the word antinomianism simply means against the law and uh that brings up this whole dynamic which the church has, has discussed since the time of the Apostle Paul. You know, what is the relationship between law and grace? And we believe that we're saved by grace and not by the works of the law. And uh, Ephesians chapter 2, I think, is the, is the crucial text there. By grace are you saved by faith and not by, uh, not, not by works, uh, that you have done, but uh, uh, only by the grace of God. And Paul had to fight that battle against uh, some of the Jews who are very jealous to keep the, the law. I mean, in the Old Testament, uh, God gave them the commandments, not only the Ten Commandments, but the 613 other commandments that were identified by the rabbis. And, uh, and uh, uh, so to be a Jew is to be a keeper of the commandments. And then uh, now uh, the Christians come along, people like Paul, who say, well, we're not uh, saved by keeping the commandments, but we're only uh, saved by God's favor, by God's goodness to us. Uh, God has sent his son Jesus to uh, give us the gift of eternal life, and it really is a gift. It's nothing that we can, uh, that we can earn. Uh, but nevertheless, the New Testament also says some favorable things about the law, about keeping commandments. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Mm -hmm. And Paul says, uh, uh, when he was struggling with the difficulty of uh, following God in, in Romans 7, he said, I, I confess that the law is holy, just, and good. So it's not that there's some error in the law, that the law is bad, uh, and so on, but uh, the problem is with me, Paul says. I, I can't keep the law, so the only way I can uh, gain any kind of relationship with God, maintain that, is, uh, is through his grace, through his free gift. And uh, that issue, of course, came up again in the Protestant Reformation, where uh, Luther believed that uh, uh, the church was telling him that he had to keep all these rules and all these laws, and uh, and Luther, being very honest, uh, he, he said he, he just didn't measure up, and he tried to, to do all these exercises, all these exertions, crawling up the, 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 the tower in Rome with uh, one step at a time, you know, <laughs> trying to do anything he could to make to please God, and then he ran into this uh, text in the Bible, the just shall live by faith. 
And uh, living by faith is not keeping the law. So uh, we, we've had this discussion now for really as long as the church has been in uh, existence. What is the relationship between keeping the law and, uh, and, and the grace of God, which saves us? And the, it's only the grace of God that saves us. Well, I think uh, I, I've, I've written about this, and I think there are different passages of the New Testament, especially that are relevant, but Old Testament too, you know. Uh, the Old Testament was a re religion of forgiveness. Uh, the religion of the Old Testament was not uh, a gospel of uh, earning your way to God, because the, what's distinctive about the Old Testament is that there, there's a system of uh, of sacrifices to atone for sin. And uh, uh, so the lamb would be brought to the altar and the lamb would be slain in the place of the worshiper because the worshiper was a sinner before God and he needed to be forgive, forgiven for that. And no matter how much he tried to go back and do all the uh, commandments uh, again and again and again, he still never got to the point where he was acceptable to God. The, the sacrifice had to be made. And the wonderful thing about the New Testament, the wonderful thing about Christ is that Christ is the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist said. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so when Christ was crucified, uh, Christ uh, was uh, uh, Christ uh, sent forth His grace upon all of those who are united to Him, all of those who trusted in Him for their salvation, and so uh, the, uh, the, the uh, but that doesn't take anything away from the law. And I, I like the way the the writer to Hebrews puts it. The writer to the Hebrews puts it in terms of a family orientation, uh, you know, where you're dealing with your father. Uh, because of Christ, God is our heavenly father. Because of Christ, we are in the family of God. And we didn't do anything to get ourselves into that family. I mean, if, when you were a baby, you, you, you entered your family uh, without doing any work to earn it. <laughs> you, you were just there. And, and this person was your father, and this person was your mother, and, and you were supposed to honor them. And uh, uh, it took a while for you to learn what that meant. But, uh, uh, but, but you enter the family by grace. You enter the family without doing anything. But when you enter the family, uh, then there are chores to do. <laughs> God expects you to, to, to follow his commandments, just like your dad expected you to take out the garbage or, or clean up your room and do various things. And it's not, you don't do these things to get into the family. You do these things because you're a child in the family, and that's what uh, children are supposed to do. And if they don't do them, well, probably you're—I mean, there are exceptions to this, I guess—but probably your dad and your mom didn't kick you out of the house if you didn't do your chores. But uh, they—if they're good parents—they would have some kind of punishment in mind uh, for you, and they would show their displeasure. And that's the way Hebrews puts it. That uh, 
uh, we do when when we don't uh, follow our, our heavenly Father. Uh, we we incur His fatherly displeasure. That doesn't mean that He sends us to hell. That doesn't mean that He throws us out of the family. But that means that He, uh, uh, he we 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 lose some of our joy. We lose some of our uh, the thr- greatest great thrill of our relationship to God. And uh, so we need to keep. Uh, asking forgiveness, we need to keep, and, and when we ask forgiveness, we're really uh, drawing on the atonement of Jesus. We're, we're saying, would you forgive me for the sake of Jesus? Would mm-hmm. you forgive me, play, take the sin that I have committed and, and place that sin upon Jesus so that uh, uh, he will uh, uh, pay, so that his penalty will cover everything that I have done? So that, uh, I, I think that's about the clearest way I know of presenting the relationship between uh, law and grace. And so we can't be antinomian. We can't be opposed to the law. Now, there, uh, we, we look at the law as something wonderful, something holy, just, and good. The law is the way to live. And uh it leads to, it doesn't save you, but it brings the best life for you and the best life for a nation, the best life for a community, the best life for a society. And so uh, uh, now, I, you know, I see churches and Christian groups where, where they say, well, I'm saved by grace, and so I don't need to worry about honoring my parents, and I don't need to worry about stealing and committing adultery and so on. That's uh, uh, since I'm saved, uh, I'm saved by grace, and I'm not saved by works. Well, that is antinomianism. That, mm-hmm. uh, uh, that is a definite error, definite error. Uh, that, that, that is separate from the Bible. And you need to catch in the Bible, the Bible gives a, 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 a word about uh, the role of grace and a word about the role of law and obedience. And uh, the Bible never abandons either of those. There's nothing about the gospel of Jesus that, uh, uh, that you can where you can say, I'm not going to obey the law anymore. That's, mm. that's just not open to you. Mm. Yeah, that helps me, uh, you know, be, especially this week, I'm preaching through Galatians. Actually, it's I, I selected way too long of a passage. It's Galatians 1, 11 through 2, 21. So Ooh. lots of verses. Uh, so I had to spend extra sermon prep time this week. But it's it's it talks about works of the law, justification. And so I'll probably just end up playing this video. <laughs> On Sunday for my church, uh, you just gave a great explanation of of <laughs> law and grace. Um, but I think that for for lots of Christians, one of the things that that I ch- challenge me, you know, I'm what they call a millennial generation Christian, right? Is <clears throat> I grew up in a Christian culture that felt very heavy on law. It felt like, you know, obey to be loved. And then when I became reformed, when I was twenty three, twenty four. It, you know, I went through that that season they call cage phase when you learn the doctrines of grace and you should be locked away for a year because you start <laughs> beating up everyone around you and and uh, and so you can overcorrect and uh, and kind of you know you you relish in the freedom that you have in Christ uh, to such a degree to where the law becomes uh, a little downplayed and so this comes down to the brass tacks of ministry and movements and 
and how we represent ourselves in the world and how we educate people, particularly with this phrase gospel centered. It's something that my church use uses still. I mean, that's one of our values to be gospel centered. So there's been, there's been a whole movement of gospel centered, getting back to justification uh, in Christ. And my concern, I guess, that I'm seeing is that because we've wonderfully recaptured the heart of the gospel uh, in many different spaces, uh, um, including my own life, uh, we have neglected to tease out uh, the the implications of law for society, for nations, for systems, uh, for families, because we've almost we've gone so gospel centered. It's become uh, I don't know if you can do gospel only, but but it's almost like we've pared down the teaching of the Bible to be uh, not too gospel centered. But but do you kind of notice the tension I'm talking about there? Is that something? Oh, you see yeah. As well? Yeah. Well, I. Uh... My own life was renewed under a gospel-centered ministry. One of my colleagues at uh, Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia was Jack Miller, who was the pastor of New Life PCA there, and uh, uh, he was uh, kind of the proverbial gospel-centered uh, uh, preacher, and I loved Jack, and uh, uh, Jack was always uh, calling us back to the cross. He was always calling us back to Jesus, and uh, uh, he wouldn't tolerate very many, very much of the discussion that went on about how the law applies to this and that, and, and whether uh, American society needs to needs to follow the laws of God. Uh, Jack was, you know, the, the issue is the what do you think about Jesus? What do you think about the grace of, of God and Jesus? And uh, once you have, have settled that, uh, there's nothing else to talk about, really. And uh, I, I, I agreed with Jack, although, I, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think there's, uh, you know, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now I think I think in that passage all means all. <laughs> you know, do all things to the glory of God, and I think that includes uh, you know, your daily work, and I think that includes your marriage and your family life. It includes politics. It includes sociology. It includes science. It includes every human endeavor, and so part of what we're going to do if we're going to not just a matter of following the law, but uh, a matter of uh, uh, being faithful to Jesus, being being witnesses of Jesus in this dark world. Uh, we need to uh, uh, get get about uh, seeing how God's law, God, the worldview of the Bible. I mean, there are different ways of putting this. Uh, the philosophy of Scripture, the uh, uh, Christ as the uh, as the creator of all, as well as the redeemer. Uh, see how all of these attach to every area of life, and uh, that I think is a very exciting thing to do. And I don't like people telling me, "Well, that's not that's not gospel. That's not this. That doesn't have anything to do with my salvation." And that's uh, I don't care. That's just law, you know. And uh, well. I think as you grow as a Christian, you, you get a more balanced perspective. You, you see that all of these different things in the Bible really fit together, and none of them gets erased. Some of them get put in perspective. Some of them get seen in a, 
particular relationship with other things, but, uh, but you know, don't don't let anything drop. You know, the the, the commandments of God are good, and living uh, according to His commandments is the way to way to live. And if it if it detracts you from your sense of being saved by grace alone, then uh, okay, you need to turn away for a while and look at it from a different perspective. But uh, the ideal is to bring all of the theology of the Bible together into one one uh, organism that's beautiful i love it the uh it's it's been challenging to uh to to grow as a pastor and do that in a faithful way i think you know some of the most helpful feedback i get is not from anyone outside my local church it's from the people i minister to the people i do life with and so mm-hmm. some of the feedback i've been getting is as i've been exploring these kind of topics you know i had a friend text me and go are you a theonomist and i was like I don't, I don't know. I have never studied theonomy. I don't know what that means. Uh, and now I have been studying it. And so I think a lot of my, the people at my church have been sensing almost a, a correction, so to speak, in my, my vision or the way I preach. And it's been a little, not upsetting to them, but they, it's been like, this is, it's a little bit of a different approach. Once the gospel, once you bring the gospel to bear on all of life and Christ informs all of life, instead of just staying at the kind of core basics of the gospel, but we then apply it to how we live our lives and, and uh, talk about the law. Uh, uh, some people have given me that feedback, like, I believe what you're saying is true. I'm just having a hard time getting there because it is a bit of a, a shift, a, sh- a gear shift, so to speak, like you talked about, like we always are kind of growing in that balance. A shift in emphasis, uh, shift in perspective to some extent. That's that's natural. That's that's what we all go through as we grow in, in Christ. Well, Dr. Fram, it's been such a joy and blessing to have you uh, talk with me about these things, help me think more deeply and, and uh, with a lot more perspective. I love hearing your stories and and uh, and your thoughts on church history and, and even your reminder of the gospel on, on our conversation today. What a, what a refreshing thing for me to be told again, to be reminded again of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Um, I want to make sure that people have the opportunity to find and follow uh, anything you're putting out nowadays. I, you know, I don't know how much you're in the classroom or where you're most active. Is there a place that you would direct people to, whether it's a website or anything like that? Well, it's not real up to date, but uh, we do have a website that I share with uh, my student and good friend, uh, Vern Poitras, P-O-Y-T-H-R-E-S-S. And that's uh, the site is called uh, uh, www.frame. No, <laughs> www.frame-poithrus.org. Uh, okay, just just look up Frame and Poithrus, and the uh, Google will direct you to the precise uh, website. Or you can look me up on Amazon. You know, I have all a whole lot of books and things on there. So uh, uh, I guess so that's the main way to get get involved with me. That's great. Is there, a, I had a friend ask me because I, um, I'm trying to, I always try to get people to, to think more deeply. And so I I'll invariably recommend one of your books. Uh, is there a good starting book? If somebody was like, I want to study John Frame or his thoughts, uh, what's a good starting, a place to start for people? <laughs> well, uh, 
I, I, I think uh, for my theology, which was kind of a standard Reformed theology, I, I wrote a 300-page introduction uh, to theology. Now, I also have this huge systematic theology that you can barely lift, but uh, there, there's this 300-page one called uh, Salvation uh, Belongs to the Lord. And that, uh, I think, gives you a, a summary of Reformed theology. And I, I do it all in threes, so you get an introduction to triperspectivalism also. Uh, and then if you're interested in my apologetics, there's in the last three years, there's been this little book called uh, Christianity Considered, which uh, it, it's very short, and it gives kind of a summary of my apologetics. I have a great big book on Van Til. I have a great big book on uh, uh, apologetics as a foundation for uh, Christian thought or something like that. Some title, I forget, keep forgetting the subtitle. And, uh, but, uh, but, but if you start with a little one called uh, Christianity Considered, you can get some idea. And if you're a little more advanced and you've majored in philosophy and you'd like to get some of the worldview, uh, ontology, epistemology, that kind of thing. Uh, the, my first published book was called uh, Doctrine of the Knowledge of God, and that's a book that tries to develop a theory of knowing uh, from the Bible. And uh, I that, that came out many years ago, but I, I think it still holds up pretty well. I, and uh, so there are a whole lot of others, of probably twenty or more that uh, you can uh, you can look at. Um, sure. yes, yeah, that doctrine of the knowledge of God. That was actually the first one I picked up, and I underlined things on like every page uh, <laughs> because it was just so helpful for me when I was in seminary. I was just like, wow, this is speaking to what I'm the tensions I'm wrestling with. So I'm a little biased in that sense. I would that's the one I would recommend, but I like that the other. I need to pick up a couple of other ones as well. Um, like I said, thank you so much for being on the show. What a blessing. Um, if you are a listener and you enjoyed this show, uh, share it with someone else. Um, maybe introduce them to, uh, to Frame. Uh, Frame is a Vantillian, and now we have Framians. Uh, and so I, uh, I would consider myself a Framian. And so uh, I would encourage you to share this episode with others. Subscribe, leave a rating, and let other, other people know about the podcast. Yeah, there are Framian Vantillians and non-Framian Vantillians. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, thanks so much for tuning in today. And until then, we will see you next time. Thank you, Chase.